Well, we're ready to pick it up again. Okay. <laughs> Usually I like a response. <laughs> I'm used to a response. <laughs> this will be uh, session 10, and this will be a little bit different from the last one. This deals with uh, Revelation chapter 6, and we will uh, look at the seal judgments. And I'm not sure how far we will get. This is basically where we left off yesterday in the class. And I'm going to pick up and don't intend to finish the whole chapter. But I want to give you at least a feel and give you an introduction to chapter 6. And a little bit of a perspective on uh, approaching not only this chapter, but uh, the bulk of the book of Revelation. Because beginning in chapter 4, actually, uh, I see that portion of Scripture to the end as the eschatological portion or the future portion. The uh, portion that we looked at in the other hour was part of what we would call uh, things applicable to the church, directly applicable. Everything's applicable to the church, but in terms of being addressed and dealing with church age issues. In chapter 4, it begins, After these things, in the context, it's talking about after the things pertaining to the church, and eschatologically, I would say, after, in terms of time, after the church age. So that's what we will endeavor to look at. But before we do that, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we desire to just clear anything in our hearts or minds that would either distract or keep us from concentrating, whether it be sin or whether it be what we're going to do this afternoon or what we have to do this week, whatever it may be, may we uh, be freed of those things and we know that your spirit can Open us in a way that uh, we can better understand. We call that illumination. We desire to be illumined by your word today. And we believe that it is absolute truth. And we believe that it is eternal. And we believe that it is perfect. And we believe that it is basically representative of what you've revealed. And we desire to understand more of it. Because it is, it is stable. It is the amen. It is the things that uh, last into eternity. And we want to accomplish eternal things this, this morning. So we commit our time asking that you would have your way. And I, I pray for clarity that I may be able to communicate. And I pray that uh, I be able to stress the things that you desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the beginning of... Uh, this division, I actually see in the book of Revelation three divisions. And in the outline sheets that I handed out to the students, uh, we uh, completed the first division of the book of Revelation. And I saw that first division going from chapter one to the end of chapter three. I put all uh, put them together and I won't go into the reasons we don't have time. But beginning in chapter 4, I see that beginning a new division 
in the book of Revelation. And that will run all the way through chapter 18 because it deals with a particular time frame. And what I'm sharing with you is a structural outline of the book. I contrasted that with Jesus' outline. Mine's not better. It's just different. <laughs> uh, mine is a structural outline. What Jesus gives is an outline of the book in uh, chapter 1, verse 19. His outline is a temporal outline. Uh, the outline that I'm kind of alluding to here is a structural outline or theologically we call it an exegetical outline. The beginning of this, well, the third section. So this section that we're dealing with now, I've entitled, as I've got it on the sheet there, the tribulation from Jesus Christ. That runs from chapter four through chapter 18. The first division is the vision from Christ among the seven churches. So that includes chapters 2 and 3. The third division begins in chapter 19, running through the end of the book, including the epilogue. And I have titled it, The Consummation of All Things by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back to this division in the second division, the subdivision I divide on your outline sheet, it's A, this, I call it the seven-sealed book. And I see everything from chapter 6 through chapter 7 relating to this seven-sealed scroll or book, however you want to identify it. Uh, so let me give you kind of an overview of that, because this is kind of a major break, a major change that we have in the book of Revelation. I see the origin of this seven-sealed scroll as given to us in heaven. It comes from heaven. And you have to be very careful in reading the book of Revelation. Where are these visions that John is privileged to see? Uh, it begins in chapter 4. He sees an open door and he sees a throne in heaven. So everything that takes place in 4 and 5 is a heavenly scene. Now, beginning in chapter 6 and chapter 5 introduces us to this scroll or this book. And we spent lots of time trying to discern what it was. I, I'm not going to go into that detail now. But I want you to notice one little word in verse 4 that kind of sets the tone for everything else. Because people have a hard time with the book of Revelation. He says, verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door open in heaven. Uh, translators insert standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things, after the things pertaining to the church. I want you to notice a little word. We might miss it. We'll skip over it in a casual reading. He says, I will show you what must. That little word, must, is a translation of a Greek word, day, with just three letters. In some contexts, and I think in this context, as well as some others that we looked at uh, earlier in the book of Revelation, it has a particular meaning, and I think the main sense of that is the idea of divine necessity. 
In other words, the things that he's going to reveal now, as horrendous as they are, and we're, we're going to get a little taste of this period of time that is yet future. In fact, commentators have a real hard time with it. And one of the things that I mentioned last time, the book of Revelation is not hard to understand if you have a good, a good foundation and a good starting point. And you use just a literal approach. Don't try to make it complicated. It's not hard to understand. It is hard to believe. And it'll stretch our imaginations. It'll stretch our ability to even conceive of what uh, is going to be recorded in chapter 6 through virtually the end of the book. But we need to keep in mind everything that we're going to be reading about must take place by divine necessity. Some of the things recorded are decreed. So nothing can change. In fact, somebody asked why I used that aircraft carrier as the introduction slide. And the reason for that is this is the way the book of Revelation comes at you. It comes at you like an aircraft carrier. You do not want to be in front of an aircraft carrier when it is on its way. You want to be on the boat. Because if you're in front of the aircraft carrier, it's going to come at you and you are not going to stop it. You, you are going to be like a gnat. You're going to be squashed. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. What God is going to accomplish, no one can stand in its way by divine necessity. We stressed that already because we saw that word earlier. These must and will occur. No options here. This is how this section begins. Now, I go back to that. We're not going to go through chapter 4 and 5. We already did that. Uh, but it stresses the divine sovereignty of God, which is a major theme throughout the whole Bible and particularly books like the book of Revelation. So that's a little important word. It kind of sets the tone for everything that we're going to talk about. So don't question it. Don't argue with it. Don't fight it. Uh, don't wonder, you know, how can this be? But just believe it and understand that God has purposes. And I'm going to try and give a little perspective on that this morning. So we have this origin in heaven of chapters 4 and 5. And what we have in chapter 6 are the openings on the earth. I like to use uh, alliteration, so I'm using O's here for our alliterative device. The origin of the seven seal scroll in 4 and 5 and the opening of the scroll in chapter 6. So that's what we'll focus in on. Let me give you some background. Now, when you think about the book of Revelation, you want to think Jewish. The book of Revelation virtually has little to say about church eschatology. There's a few little things stuck in there because we have a relationship there. But in general, what we're talking about is we're talking about Jewish eschatology. These are things that were promised to the nation of Israel. The, if you uh, just study the text, uh, the term... Uh, ecclesia, the Greek word for, for church, after chapter 4, never occurs again except in the epilogue when Paul or uh, John is, con is instructed to send the letters to the churches. But it's more instructional. It's not dealing with the church. Uh, there are saints that come about, but they're not part of the church. The church uh, and the book of Revelation, I don't think, deals with the rapture. 
because it's Jewish, basically. We're talking about Jewish eschatology, things that pertain to the nation of Israel that are prophesied in the Old Testament. And already we have spent lots of time in the Old Testament looking up uh, allusions and that sort of thing. And now we're going to have to do that some more to be able to understand the rest of it. So the book of Revelation, John assumes that we understand or have a pretty good foundation in understanding the Old Testament. There are a few major issues in Jewish eschatology. One of them is an issue that Israel will go through a period of tribulation. The prophet, all the prophets deal with this problem of tribulation. Let's go back. In fact, I'll have you turn. Keep your finger in uh, Revelation. Go all the way back even before the nation was a nation. Go to Deuteronomy. This is before they entered the land. This is before, in, in fact, defend, depending on how you define a nation, I think they're not even a nation yet. I think in order to be a nation, they need to have three things. They have to have a common people, which they did have. They have to have a common constitution. That's the law. And who wants to suggest the third thing they have to have? Common land. And they're not in the land yet. In fact, Deuteronomy is to prepare them for the land. So, they're not truly a nation yet. And in chapter 4, God reveals to Moses basically Israeli history for, for the rest of their existence. And notice what he says. This is the background of what we're going to look at. Beginning of verse 25. And when you become the father of children and children's children and have... Remained long in the land. They're not even there yet. In fact, they've been in the wilderness 40 years. And act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. That's a summary of their history. I call heaven and earth to witness. Who is he calling there, by the way? Who are the witnesses? We... Those of you that are students, what have we seen in the book of Revelation over and over already? And we haven't even got into the heart of the book. Angelic creatures. All of the function of angelic creatures. Even in Deuteronomy, we have this idea here where he's calling heaven to witness what he's saying here. Uh, we saw a little bit of that in verse 14 of chapter 3 there. I call heaven and earth to witness against, against you today that you shall surely perish quickly. Well, that's, those are encouraging words. <laughs> we haven't even arrived in the land and we're going to perish. Perish quickly from the land where you are going over the, the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but shall be utterly destroyed. Be blessed. <laughs> Verse 27, and the Lord will scatter you among the, the peoples and you shall be left few in number among the nations where the Lord shall drive you. Wow. He doesn't say, oh, you're going you're gonna to have this glorious time and you're going to have this great influence and great ministry and we're going to have all these blessings and all that. He focuses on what's going to happen to them in terms of the negative. And there, there you will serve gods, their idolatry, the work of man's hands, wood, stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord. 
your God. Now, what's implied here is they are going to go through tribulation. They're going to be exiled. They're going to have trouble. And if you read the prophets, it's very explicit, very clear. Uh, before Messiah, Israel's going to experience trouble. Another aspect which we have mentioned here, and there, or verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all of your hearts and all of your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you, when? In the latter days. This is the end of their history. This is eschatology. This is their future. They're going to make a mess of the kingdom. They're going to make a mess of their nation. But they're going to eventually call on the name of the Lord. This is what the book of Revelation is talking about. is fulfillment of these things, the latter days. In the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant. It's all dependent on the covenant. Israel's covenants, none of their covenants have been fulfilled, except maybe the Mosaic in Christ. He fulfilled it. Abrahamic covenant is not complete. It's not completely fulfilled. None of the covenants. Davidic covenant, certainly not. New covenant, certainly not. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant. Now, the one that's in view here is probably Mosaic and Abrahamic. And maybe Palestinian. Uh, Forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. So he's going to fulfill all these things. These things must take place. They will be restored. Now, as you study through the Old Testament, uh, revelation is given concerning Messiah. And all these things will be fulfilled only when Messiah comes. And when Messiah comes, here's another element of Jewish eschatology, the kingdom. Those are the four main features of Jewish eschatology. That's the rest of the book of Revelation. Chapters 4 through, well, actually 6 through 18, uh, separating out the heavenly scene, it's tribulation. It's tribulation. We also have in chapter 7, restoration, or at least hints of it, or the beginnings of it. And we'll have more of that as we progress further into the book of Revelation. And then we have chapter 19, we have Messiah. Coming of Messiah. And when Messiah comes, we have the kingdom. That's chapter 20. So, the book of Revelation, think Jewish, think Old Testament, think in terms of fulfillment of covenants, think of what God has yet to do with the nation of Israel. Don't think church. You know, we think it's all about us. (laughs) Uh, We think, you know, God's only dealing with the church. There's other things that He's dealing with. He's dealing with angels, He's dealing with the nations, He's dealing with Israel, not just the church. And the church isn't there. The church is gone. <clears throat> At least if you're premillennial and pre-tribulational. Uh, there's many other passages that we could look at. You could, you could look in Deuteronomy and he talks about the captivity or the exile in chapter 28. 
In fact, chapter 28 promises if you obey Him, you'll have all these blessings in the land in every category, whether it be physical or social or family, all nationally, militarily, internationally, all of these blessings if you walk with me and are obedient. But if you do not, there's corresponding curses. And then even in that chapter, he talks... Uh, that they will go into exile. Uh, chapter 28, verse 36 to 37, verse 41, verse 45 through 48, verses 63 through 68, all talk about the exile. And then in chapter 30, he expands on uh, restoration. And he hints in that passage uh, on the kingdom. So this is Jewish eschatology that we're looking at. So chapter 6, think Jewish. Uh, the clue, what, what kind of clued me into this, if you think, uh, where, where is a real good summary of eschatology in the New Testament besides the book of Revelation? Probably the best summary of eschatology in uh, the New Testament. Can you think of it? That's a question. <laughs> Hoping for a response. <laughs> Don't make Ron answer all the questions. <laughs> Think Jesus. <laughs> the Olivet Discourse, which includes more than 24, 24 and 25. If you analyze the uh, context of that passage, no church. This is way before the church. In fact, the disciples have no clue what the church is all about. It's like they don't even have a clue as to what the church is all about till probably after chapter 15 and maybe even later than that in the book of Acts. They have no concept of the church. The church is not there. What Jesus is talking about is what Israel expects. The, they were Jewish. They, were, they had a Jewish background. What they anticipated, what they understood. What they understood about the Old Testament concerning Jewish eschatology. When that clicked in my mind, the same thing is true of the book of Revelation. Most of the New Testament eschatology is Jewish. In fact, if you go down the list of what things... In terms of eschatology, they're important, but the list is small in terms of what God has yet to do in terms of the church. I won't do that. We kind of summarize it in the class in, what, ten seconds? <laughs> okay, so that, that, that's the essence, and that's, what, that's the perspective. That's what you want to think. What's the purpose of this period of time? Well, it has a twofold purpose, at least in my mind. Mainly Israel. Salvation of Israel, but God is also dealing with the nations. That's kind of a secondary sub-theme. All of these judgments are coming about to get and prepare and refine Israel for the coming of their Messiah and to prepare them for the kingdom. And it's beginning in chapter 6. We'll see a little bit of that in chapter 7. The second purpose of, the, oops, of the, uh, this period of time called tribulation is for judgment. And I've already stated that uh, that's a very consistent um, theme throughout the book. You even see it in the churches, as I mentioned. And pre- primarily the judgment of the nations. Okay. Israel will be judged as well, but primarily the nations. And even you could include the earth. Judgment of the earth. God's going to cleanse the earth. 
like the Genesis flood, the, the flood was a cleansing of the earth. Everything was wiped out and God started over. Similar in the book of Revelation. Uh, these are geophysical. These are astrophysical judgments, a lot of them. Some of them are consequences of sin of men, and some of them are instigated by men. But the earth is involved as well. That's the purpose of this period of time. What are the conditions that are described? They're horrendous. And if you take the passages literally, it, it, they're hard to even conceive. Major conditions. This is Satan's final hour. And I could, in fact, on this one slide, we could spend a whole hour. I'm not going to do it, but we could talk about this and bring in all these scriptures in terms of what Satan is going to do during this period of time. This is his finest hour. If you think Satan does damage today, you haven't seen anything yet. His finest hour. In fact, he will be confined to his activities to the earth. Right now, he has access to heaven. So, Satan's finest hour, and he will stimulate men to do things that are unimaginable. Secondly, it's man's final product. Man attempts all kinds of things in some ways to reach God on his own. You see the final efforts of man. In fact, uh, one, of, one of the clear themes of the book of Revelation is uh, some explicit statements on the depravity of man. You would think with all of these judgments that uh, men would very easily and freely fall down and say, oh, okay, I want to believe in God. But notice even in this chapter, and we won't get this far, but so let me read a little bit of it. Uh, look at verse 15, chapter 6, Revelation. I'm back in Revelation. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves. In other words, it didn't matter where their background was, uh, their education, their uh, economic background, their uh, in terms of freedom or slavery. They hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Are they, are they ignorant about what's going on? Are they just noting that these are just geophysical, just uh, astrophysical events? They know what is going on and they are hiding from the Lamb. That's depravity. That's the nature of man. They know who the Lamb is. Now, we know, we've interpreted that as that's Jesus Christ. In fact, that's John's favorite Identification of Jesus Christ. He identifies him 28 times in the book of Revelation as the Lamb. To remind us that this glorious Jesus is the same Jesus that died on the cross. That was the sacrifice, the sacrificial Lamb. And notice, they know the time frame. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come. Their wrath. They know the Trinity. They understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And who is able to stand? Man's final product, a rejection and a raised fist against God. I'm spending too much time on this. <clears throat> it's also the world's uniting. It goes all the way back to Babel. And all of the principles that are developed in Babel come to their fruition and fullness during this period of time. The world's final re, uh, uniting. 
Babylon the Great is the theme of some of the passages. In fact, the focus of several of them. The world's uniting. Fourthly, it's Israel's refining. Lots of little notes, little statements concerning Israel. There's 144,000 Jews that seem, I think, initially are sealed for a particular ministry and obviously saved first or regenerated. Uh, They will be prominent during this period of time. There's two prophets in chapter 11 that will have prophetic ministry. Uh, There's the salvation of the nation of Israel. In fact, the, the greatest revival the world will ever see will be during that period of time It'll be primarily instigated by those that are believers in, amongst the nation of Israel. So it's Israel's refining hour. And fifthly, it's God's judgments. God is resolving all that happened in Genesis 3. World history is nothing more than a record of God beginning to deal with sin And he completes that work in a future period of time. Judgment is God separating out evil from that that he loves. And that's what he's doing. That's what judgment is all about. And this book is full of judgment. And ultimately, this is God's consummating work in every way, not just judgment. He's fulfilling all his covenants. He's fulfilling all of his promises. He's revealing more of his character. He's bringing people to himself. There'll be the final resolution concerning not only evil. Final destinies will be determined and established. Both of the wicked and the godly. So God is going to consummate everything. And that's in chapters 19 through the end of the book. In fact, that's why I titled the, that division that. So this is a, a, a time that is very, very unique. Let me give you another little perspective to help you because I think if you understand something, of the, and this is very, very superficial. We could spend hours on the justice of God. And if we understand the justice of God, uh, we will be able to believe and understand what uh, the Scriptures teach concerning uh, things to come, particularly the, the judgments. A few statements. Louis Burkhoff. It's that perfection of God by which we, he, he manifests himself over against every violation of his holy Holiness and shows in every respect that he is the Holy One. So it's an attribute of God. And I I like the word perfection. I prefer to call them perfections. We have attributes. All of our attributes are imperfect. All of our attributes are limited and finite. God's attributes are infinite and perfect. So perfections. That perfection of God by which he maintains himself over against every violation of his holiness. That's sin. And shows in every respect that he is the Holy One. I like that statement. And God has absolute right and authority over all of his creation. He is the creator. All his creatures. He is the creator. And he is the the potter. Romans 9 says the potter can do with the clay whatever he wants. 
Another quote, another theologian. Justice is that phase of God's holiness which is seen in his treatment of the obedient and disobedient subjects of his government. Judgment, which is a main theme, is God's justice. Well, God's justice is an expression of his holiness. His judgment is executing that justice toward righteous, the righteous, and unrighteous. Wrath, which is also present. In fact, I just read a word there. Uh, the word in the end of chapter 6. For great is the day of their wrath, which has come. And is, who is able to stand? Wrath is executing of justice toward the sin and the sinner. In other words, it's focused on the sinner and the sin. Just a few scriptures. We could find hundreds of scriptures on the justice of God, on the wrath of God, on His judgments. Just a couple. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. So we can't question them. They're proper. They're appropriate. Uh, there might be a tendency when you read the book of Revelation to think, wow, man, man that's just that's too much. It goes too far, but they are righteous. In other words, they're appropriate. Or they're according to his standard, not ours. And Revelation. I heard the angel. There's an angel again. Angel of the waters, in this case, saying, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, O holy one, because thou didst judge these things. God is judge. Executes judgment. Pours out wrath. A couple of implications. The necessity of judgment. I alluded to that even from the beginning of chapter 4. Uh, this is on your outline sheet, by the way. Uh, fulfillment of God's plan. This is a fulfillment of what God has intended and purposed. This is what we're looking at. Chapter 4 focuses on the one seated on the throne and the Lamb and the scroll, and each one ends in worship. It's appropriate to worship the judge. And the openings on the earth, in chapter 6, we have six seal judgments. So that's what we want to focus in on. Six seal judgments. And we won't finish all of them. To give you kind of a, a timeline and a time frame, if we're sitting here today, 2012, we don't know when the rapture will take place. We should be ready for it. I put the rapture just a little bit before this two-part period of time, three and a half years. This is very precise. The book of Daniel spells out this week of years. The rapture conceivably could take place before. It's not the rapture that starts the clock ticking. Daniel in, in chapter 9 lays out Israel's history. 
In fact, Israel is tied to the clock. Israel has a calendar. Israel, everything relating to Israel is on a time frame, on a schedule. Even starting in Genesis 15 with the Abrahamic covenant, God is already predicting in years when things are going to take place. They're on a calendar. All of Jewish history has been completed except one week. It still awaits fulfillment. Daniel talks about that, and Daniel even implies that there'll be a space of time between the fulfillment of the first 69 weeks of Israel's history. So, 400 and what is that? 483? Is my math right? You're the math guru. <laughs> Uh, that's been completed. In fact, it was fulfilled to the day on Palm Sunday when Messiah came for the first time. And then there's a gap. The Jews anticipated, even in Acts 6, are you going to establish the kingdom now? You're the Messiah. You're here. You've been raised from the dead. We've seen you. Are you going to establish the kingdom now? They're thinking Jewish eschatology. They didn't realize that there'd be a, at least a 2,000 year gap. But there's still one week that has never been fulfilled. That week begins in chapter 6. The clock starts ticking in Israel's history. Not with the rapture. The clock starts ticking with what? I think some of you probably know enough eschatology to give an answer. What's the kicker in a signing of a particular treaty or covenant that Daniel spells out. That starts the clock. And it starts ticking and it's going to be precise. And it's going to be composed of two, three and a half year periods of time. The Bible calls it a period of tribulation. That is what will be related to the nation of Israel. Then deal with the church. That's what we're talking about. Four seals, four horsemen. Let's read the text. And I saw, again, we, we've seen that word. I haven't kept track, but it occurs, I think, 54 times in the book of Revelation. book of Revelation is very visual. Adeo is the Greek word, and we've been talking about that. John is just simply writing down the things that he saw in these visions... Some of them I've even described as indescribable. And John is at a loss for words to try to pen on paper or parchment the things that he was seeing. Just There's no words to describe some of what he saw. Here's another one of them. In fact, this chapter might be classified as another one that is indescribable. And I saw when the Lamb, we talked about the Lamb being the only one worthy to open this book. When the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, there it is again. In fact, the most common reference to him in the book. And, and I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals. So now he's going to open this scroll. And I heard one of the four living creatures. Now, that was, we looked at that in some detail in chapters 4 and 5 and identified them as angelic creatures. One of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Thunder. Uh-oh. Storm is coming. It's not going to turn out good. Sound like thunder. Come. 
So this is an address to John. Verse 2, And I looked. And now he's going to tell us what he saw. I looked and behold a white horse. So we have the first horseman. White horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now notice one thing in a military setting here. He has a bow, but there's no mention of arrows. The suggestion that a lot of the commentaries make here on, at this point is that this is a uh, bloodless conquest. In other words, it's probably either by uh, the appearance of authority where people's hearts are swayed and or convincing argument or whatever the case may be. He does conquer. That's what it says here. And he has a crown. This is not a diadem. I think this is Stephanos, which is a crown of uh, victory in terms of in an athletic contest. It's winning the, uh, the race. And notice a little phrase was given to him. All of this is uh, not natural. All of this, there, there, there's things going on behind the scenes here. Uh, that little phrase, uh, didomai is the Greek word, that wor- word occurs several times in, in this chapter. Let me just call attention to it in its first occurrence. Uh, gives us the idea that uh, there's something going on behind the scenes. In other words, God himself is orchestrating all this. This is given to him. It's, it's not from his own resource. Crown was given to him, this authority, this standing, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Well, who is in view here? Probably one of the most common interpretations is it's Jesus Christ. Because if you compare uh, chapter 19 with what we have here, Jesus comes on a white horse and he comes as a conqueror and he has crowns, diadems. But I think he come, uh, he, he's similar and he looks like Christ. And a lot of, I think the commentators and a lot of readers of the text uh, fall for it. But I think it's a deception. The alternative here, it's Antichrist. And I think Antichrist will come as a messianic figure impersonating the Lord Jesus Christ to such an extent and rise to power rather rapidly in such a way that people think he's the Messiah. People think that he's the one that comes on a white horse as the Messiah. That's the first seal judgment. White horseman. Uh, The better interpretation is that this is Antichrist. I think what we have is a condition that is set up early in this period of time at the very beginning. In fact, uh, other scriptures speak. Uh, they'll, they'll say peace and peace and uh, there'll be no peace. In other words, the period of time is going to begin very promising. 
a figure is going to come that is going to appear to be able to solve the world's problems. He will have messianic, at least falsely messianic appearance. He will be a dynamic, interesting individual. He will sway people. And there will be a relative peace, I believe, at the beginning. But this is a judgment. This is a seal judgment. The first one is peace. He will sign a covenant. He's going to solve the Arab-Israeli problem. There's not going to be any war between Israel and the Arabs anymore. He solved it. That's the covenant. And people are going to think, wow, if he can do that, maybe he can rule the world. If he can do that, they haven't been able to do that since Ishmael. They haven't been able to get along since way back. So that's probably the best interpretation of this first horseman. Now we have a second horseman. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature. Uh, you kind of have to keep track of things in the book of Revelation. That, that's the only thing that kind of makes it difficult in terms of interpretation. You kind of have to understand who these creatures are. And we talk, like I said, we talked about them. Now they have a part. And we've already laid a groundwork here to talk about uh, angelic creatures. There are angels throughout the book of Revelation. And here again we have them. One of their primary function is they are involved, sometimes directly executing judgment. In some cases, restraining judgment. In other cases, we see angels uh, even making revelation. There's even an angel that proclaims the gospel. So they're God's instruments throughout this portion of the, in fact, the whole book of Revelation. They have a variety of ministries. In fact, I challenge the students uh, to maybe just read through the book of Revelation just solely to see uh, all of the ministries that uh, God has uh, revealed for angels in the book of Revelation. Here we have them associated with the seal judgments, each of them, at least the horse, the horsemen, these four creatures. We were introduced to them in, in chapter four. I mentioned that you can come up with almost a complete uh, angelology or a complete theology concerning angels if you just simply study the angels in the book of Revelation. There's enough revelation about angels in the book to give us almost a complete angelology. Okay? So, he breaks the second seal and the second living creature saying, Come. Invitation to read or look. And another, a red horse. In other words, another horseman or another horse. Another went out and to him who sat on it, it was granted. Notice again. It was granted. In other words, more is happening than what is visible on the surface. These are not just things that are external. These are not just uh, historical events that are taking place. There's orchestration that's going on. There's a sovereign God that is moving. 
uh, in fact, there's a lot of verses that indicate, and these are the little hints in this context, where we can conclude that these judgments are not just simply consequences of sin or not just simply the uh, result of man, but God is actually orchestrating these judgments. These are God's judgments that He's bringing. And we have seven seals. We have a complete set of judgments. Now, only six are in chapter six. So this red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, there's the horseman, it was granted to take peace from the earth. Okay, this peace is is here. That's why I interpret the first one. Peace is established, but now the next one comes, it takes it away. So everybody thinks, oh, this thing's solved. Now we can go in, we can have our own millennium that we can establish ourselves. We, we know how to do it. We got, we got a leader that uh, can do it for us, and he can guide us and lead us, and all we got to do is just follow his instructions. All of a sudden, no peace. So he was granted to take peace from the earth that men should slay one another. Now, God uses instrumentality when he brings judgments. And in this case, he's using the instrumentality of men and men's sinfulness. Uh, that men should slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. The Greek word, there are at least two words in the Greek text. This one, makaira is the one in view here. This is a uh, short sword that was used in hand-to-hand combat. In bloody combat. It was also used uh, in other ways as well. It was the executioner's sword as well. But I think the allusion in this passage is obviously to warfare. So a great sword. And again, didomai at the end of the verse there was given to him. Don't miss that. God is sovereign over these judgments. You'll see this over and over. There's a reconstruction of what archaeologists, I guess, uh, think one of those swords would look like. Could you envision somebody's head cut off with that? No? So the first seal judgment, there's a temporary peace that goes very quickly. The second judgment is war. Uh, These are just... Uh, I did this for kids one time, and these are kind of left over, so most of you are just kids anyway. So, Kind of give them the, imp- the impression of what's going on here. Lots of destruction, war. Uh, use your imagination. In fact, when you read the book of Re- Revelation, don't just read it through. Think about what you're reading and, and, and pause occasionally and just try to visualize. What is John seeing here? Uh, and... What are the implications of what he's seeing there? So, when you're thinking of war, you want to imagine and think in terms of scenes like this, where there's destruction, damage. 
What does the military do? They break things and kill people. That's what you want to think about. That's what it's all about. So we have a black horseman. Verse 5, And when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature. There's that third angelic being saying, Come. It's following a pattern here, right? Very similar. There's lots of patterns in the book of Revelation. Just keep, keep following. Things are organized uh, in patterns. Oftentimes sevens. We had seven churches. We're going to have seven seals. We have a totally new set of judgments called uh, trumpet judgments. That's chapters 8 eight and 9 in chapter 16. And in an introduction in chapter 15, we're going to have bowl judgments. And there's seven of each of them. So we're going to have kind of these patterns of things. Here we have a third horseman, a black one. So the third living creature saying, come. And I looked. So John is observing. John is an observer. And he's seeing all these things. And he's telling us what he sees. Behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. This is what he sees. So we have to imagine what he sees. And now think about what what is the meaning of what he is seeing here. Verse 6. And I heard, as it were... A voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, so now John sees something and now he hears this voice. It's almost like, oh, okay, somebody's making a comment here about what he's seeing. So all we have is the comment. He doesn't tell us what he saw. Okay, but what he sees here, a quart of wheat for a denarius. So he's seeing uh, something that relates probably to economic things. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. So somebody is saying these things. Well, how does this relate to what John is seeing? Well, he is seeing something that pertains to an economic situation. And when he uses the word denarius and you study that word and you find out the economic value of it in the first century... The value of that was the equivalent of what a, an average labor could do or work and earn for one day's wage. So if John has seen some economic situation here that has something to do with a quart of wheat for a denarius, in other words, if he was going to the marketplace, maybe what John is seeing is a scene in a marketplace and he's looking at the prices of goods. The price of the uh, wheat is one denarius. In other words, it's going to take a whole day's wage to be able to buy, uh, buy or purchase this quart of wheat. And if you measure it, you women probably know that a quart of wheat is only going to probably feed a family just one meal in one day. So, John is visualizing an economic situation where it's going to require an entire day's wage just to be able to feed your family. That doesn't include buying gas to go down to the rec center, wherever you go. Doesn't include clothes. Doesn't include all the other things. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. So, you're going to have to make a decision 
do I buy the wheat or do I buy the barley? And barley was usually the, the, the sustenance for the animals. So do the animals eat today or do we eat as a family today? All we have is a denarius. We've got to make a choice. Either that or we have to split it and just get half and half. And we'll just have half a meal and have the animals eat half a meal. That's the economic picture that John is visualizing or seeing in the words that are spoken to him. And then it goes on, and do not harm the oil and the wine. In other words, don't uh, buy them. You can't afford them. Do not harm the oil and the wine. Those are the luxuries. Those are the uh, second cell phones or whatever. Whatever luxuries you get. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so that's the imagery there. <clears throat> Denarion. One day's wage. So this is an economic situation that John is describing. So we have a, an economic condition that the world is going to be faced with. And uh, that economic uh, condition is what? Uh, this is what he would maybe this is maybe something of what he saw a scale for balancing weights. This would be common in a market area. And by the way, this is uh, from the first century. This is how they would have weighed goods and other things. This is what he is seeing. Famine. Uh, these are not to sensationalize it. This, just to give you a, a visual picture, and this is what you want to do. You want to use your imagination and, and, and think of what, what is being described here. Okay. So there's peace. First horseman. There's war. There's famine. And what's the result of war and famine? And we'll conclude with the next seal. It's about as far as we can go today. What do you anticipate the next seal judgment to be if you have war and famine? Lots of death. <laughs> Uh, verse 7, and we broke the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature, very similar in structure, saying, come. Again, John is looking. John is invited. And in verse 8, and I looked and behold an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name death. So we have the ashen horse. And we have death. And Hades was following. That's not a good thing. It's not going to be a lot of fun in this period of time. Hades was following with him. And notice what is given again. Did my what was given to him? And authority was given to him over a quarter or a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence. And by the wild beasts of the earth. So, all kinds of catastrophic things are going to happen. And that's the result of war. Things are destroyed. Uh, zoos are... The gates are blown up and animals are running loose. It talks about beasts there. Uh, war continues and people are going to die. And there's going to be famine as a result because goods are not going to be delivered. Grocery stores are going to be empty. And even if you have a denarius, things are going to be... Uh, Impossible to buy. 
as a result of all this, there's also pestilence. There's, there's disease that is transmitted. So all of this is just the result of the rest. This is unimaginable. 25%. If you imagine today, there's 7 billion people on the face of the earth. This is why commentators have a real hard time with the book of Revelation because it speaks on such a scale that you can't imagine it. Can you imagine a quart, quarter of everybody in this room dying? That's what it says here. If there are 7 billion people on the face of the earth. We're talking about 1.75 billion people. Later on, another third, and I think it's an addition to this quarter, so you add, if you do the numbers, you end up with half the population of the earth being destroyed. Here, a quarter of it, uh, if you can imagine, all of China just wiped off the face of the map. And not just China, they only have a billion, so you have to account for another 75 or 0.75 billion, uh, include uh, most of Asia. All wiped out as a result of these judgments. So, book of Revelation, I think the text is not that difficult to follow here. We see these judgments. What is hard to conceive of and imagine is uh, the implications of it. So, we have lots of stuff like that. Death. Okay. We have peace. Short-lived. War that removes the peace. Famine. Death. Uh, let me close just to give you kind of an insight, and with the class, I'll expand on this a little bit more. If you go to Jesus' account of the same area, uh, same uh, eschatology, this is Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is talking about this same timeline, and I see all of these judgments taking place in this period of time, not before, and I see also what Jesus has here. Uh, there's a parallel there. And real quickly, I'll show you the parallel. Jesus begins by talking about Christ and Antichrist. Revelation talks about probably the Antichrist. Secondly, it talks about various wars and rumors of wars in Matthew chapter 24. Those are verses 6 and 7. Uh, we have that as the second judgment. Jesus also talks about famine in uh, verse 7. And he also talks about, uh, later on, uh, we didn't get this far, but martyrs. And he talks about cataclysms at the end. So I see the seal judgments. This is just in conclusion to kind of wrap it up. The seal judgments, I see them as a panorama, mainly because of the parallel that I see with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read uh, verse 29 in Matthew chapter 24... Uh, we have the same cataclysms that are described in the sixth seal judgment at the end of the book, uh, uh, the end of chapter, chapter six. Uh, let's close at that point. May not be a good place to stop, but we're out of time. <laughs> Father, we just praise you that we can be assured that even though these are horrendous things and even unimaginable things that are recorded not only in the book of Revelation, but uh, similarly in the prophets, uh, things that are hard to conceive, but yet, as we begin, we know that these things must 
take place. And we know that uh, not only are you judge, but uh, uh, hopefully this gives us an appreciation for your grace because you acted graciously to us and you will act in grace throughout the book of Revelation as well. We praise you for that. And it's just my hope today that as we've looked at this negative aspect of judgment today, that maybe now we uh, have a more appreciation for grace and love and, and your compassion. So we just praise you for both the fact that you are judge and the fact that you are gracious. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.